I'm wondering this morning, when you're dealing with an issue in your life, a problem, a relationship, a character flaw, maybe anger or pride, something that's causing you real turmoil and distress, where do you instinctively go for answers? I mean, if you had a problem right now, where would you go? Would you jump on the internet and start doing some research? Maybe you'd Google it, check out Wikipedia. Maybe you'd look it up on WebMD. Or maybe you're not a research person, you're a relationship person. So you'd immediately turn to a relationship, maybe a close friend, maybe a colleague who always gives you good advice. Or if it's a bigger or more consistent problem, maybe you'd get some professional help from a doctor or a counselor. It is Father's Day. Maybe you're a guy's guy, right? And your answer to every problem is a new tool. So you fix problems with direct conflict, fistfights, band-aids, and medication. Or you avoid issues altogether, right? You, you head to the man cave. Or if you're a woman, you stuff problems in the emotional vault. Or you gossip about it over coffee with your friends. Those, of course, are all possibilities. But let me ask, is the Word of God anywhere on your radar when I'm asking these questions? Are you letting it transform you, renew your mind? Or are you being conformed to this world? What if you don't feel close to God? So your walk is dry. And you just want to have some sort of spiritual experience. Maybe you're, you're struggling with the direction of your life. You just want to know, what is the will of God for me? You want God to speak to you. doesn't need to be an audible voice. You're not asking for that. But for some way, somehow, for him to let you know what you should do. Where do you go for answers then? Do you get away from it all? Do you go for a walk out in creation or maybe exercise? You go for a long run or a bike ride? Or maybe you meditate, fast and pray. Or make sure that you get ahead in your Bible reading plan, thinking somehow God will reward you if you just put in enough time with him. Obviously, those are all good things. Nothing wrong with them necessarily. But let me ask, is Christ anywhere in those experiences? Or more pointedly, is Christ central to those experiences? Or is he just presumed upon? Now, what I want you to understand is those questions were the same questions plaguing the Colossian church, who just like us, had a seemingly unquenchable tendency to look for answers in all the wrong places. Being captivated by worldly wisdom rather than looking to the Word of God, or more specifically, looking to the Lord Jesus himself. 
seeking to have a spiritual high, a way to draw near to God, experiencing him in a greater and more profound way that really has nothing to do with Christ. See, the Colossians were struggling. They were struggling with spiritual distractions, and they were struggling with spiritual enticements. So either distracted from the supremacy of Christ or captivated by something other than the sufficiency of Christ. Either way, both have the potential for significant eternal consequences, if not corrected with truth and with urgency. And to no one's surprise, we're prone to struggle in the exact same way, aren't we? So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. It's on page 983 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. I also encourage you to grab my outline from your bulletin. As you can see, the title of my sermon this morning is Reason Number Two Why Jesus Came to Die to Cancel Our Debt. I'm going to begin by giving you, number one, the context of that promise, but I want to frame our whole discussion this morning, make sure that I set your expectations correctly, because we're going to spend a good amount of our time trying to highlight and have you see in Colossians how Paul highlights the supremacy of Christ, and how the supremacy of Christ is absolutely essential to the sufficiency of Christ. Namely, his death on a cross, him canceling our debt. So A, the reality of false teaching, the context of that promise and the reality of false teaching distract us from the supremacy of Christ, sufficiency of Christ, how he canceled our debt. Paul's writing to the Colossians. But he's writing for a reason, right? I mean, you don't just pick up a pen and start writing to some random group of people, do you? No, there must be an occasion. There must be a reason. There must be a backstory. Well, here's the backstory. Essentially, a guy by the name of Epaphras, listed in chapter 1, verse 7, came to faith probably under Paul's preaching in Ephesus. But he's originally from Colossae. That's his hometown. We know that from chapter 4, verse 12. So he hears the gospel. He repents. He believes he's saved. And he makes the decision to head back to preach the good news of the gospel in his own hometown. Everything's going great. Plants the church. It's growing. Everything's going great. Until A, he's faced with the reality of false teaching which Epaphras doesn't know exactly how to handle. So he heads to Rome, where Paul's under house arrest, gets some advice. And as a result, Paul writes this letter and sends it by way of Tychicus, who, if you remember, carried Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Those towns are relatively close to one another. But the main issue is false teaching. And as you read the letter, it seems to be false teaching with three different flavors which Paul essentially lists in chapter 2, verses 16 to 13. So look there with me. The first false teaching is Jewish legalism, which he kicks off with in verse 16 when Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. 
Those are all Jewish traditions. So the false teachers seem to be pushing some sort of Jewish legalism. Follow these rules. Keep these commandments so that you can earn favor with God and ultimately go to heaven. Second false teaching is spiritual asceticism. Look at verse 18. Paul says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions being puffed up without reason by their sensuous minds. So ascetic practices, what's that? Well, well, how about fasting? In order to prepare yourself to receive visions and participate with angels in worshiping God. Third false teaching is worldly wisdom, philosophy, and paganism. Look at verse 20. Paul says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teaching. Paul also says, chapter 2, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of this world. False teaching abounds in Colossae, doesn't it? Now, why am I going through all that? Well, because I think we can totally relate, can't we? I mean, aren't you prone to think if there's ever been a time in which false teaching abounds, it's right now. Sure seems to be. My goodness, look around at all the issues that we're having. Gun violence, abortion, racism, sexual identity confusion, transgenderism. And all the different solutions that the world is throwing at those problems. But the truth is, it's always been like that. It's encouraging, actually, to read the book of Colossians. It's like, oh, they had those problems too. It's always been like that. Why? Because man has always been sinful. Therefore, false teaching has always abounded. And if you agree with that assessment that man is sinful and therefore false teaching always abounds, then you're going to want to listen very carefully to what Paul has to say is the solution, which is B, the need for true wisdom. Because he's going to give us the remedy for all our struggles with spiritual distractions and spiritual enticements. And even our tendency... The leaning that we have to buy into false teaching and worldly wisdom. But here's a quick spoiler alert. It's not going to be the internet. It's not going to be WebMD. It's not going to be your own thinking. Instead, it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be the good news of the gospel. Because that's where true wisdom is found. Which is why Paul, number one, prays for wisdom, number two, gives the revelation of wisdom, and number three, proclaims wisdom. In fact, just look at how he prays for the Colossians, starting in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this, you have heard before. 
How have they heard before? In the word of truth. That is the gospel. And he doesn't stop there, does he? No, look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. Be filled with what, Paul? Be filled with the knowledge of his will. God's knowledge, true knowledge in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Notice, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in what? In the knowledge of God. So there's a direct connection, isn't there? Between knowing wisdom in your head and walking in wisdom in your life. I would suggest to you this morning that they cannot be separated. But what exactly is the true wisdom of God? Or more specifically, who is the true wisdom of God? Well, Paul tells us in verses 15 to 23. But he doesn't say it explicitly until we get to chapter 2, verse 1. So skip forward to what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Listen to this. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, here it is, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul's praying for the Colossians to be filled with the wisdom of God and for them to have full assurance of understanding. But that's ultimately a true knowledge of Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Jesus is the wisdom of God. But what exactly does that mean, that Christ is the revelation of God's mystery, or that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? And how exactly does that help us this morning? Well, that's exactly what Paul's been telling the Colossians back in chapter 1. We just skipped over it in order to get the punchline. But if you will, look back chapter 1, verse 15. What does he do in 15 to 20, verses 15 to 20? He highlights the supremacy of Christ in creation and the supremacy of Christ in redemption. 115, he says, he is, the he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So, so he's preeminent over all creation. He rules and he reigns over all things, which is crystal clear because Paul clarifies, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a revelation of the supremacy of Christ in all creation. But can you see what Paul's doing? He's declaring that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God because he's the one true God-man, the Messiah. He is very God of very God. And remember, this is written with Jewish legalism in the background. So people who knew wisdom originates with God, the creator and sustainer of the world. And yet Paul's declaring that's all true ultimately 
in the Lord Jesus. Not only Jewish legalism, but spiritual asceticism. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Because Christ reigns supreme over all things. All things were created by him and for him and created for your good to be enjoyed, assuming you rightly enjoy them as glorious gifts from the one true God, the Lord Jesus himself. So Paul is saying Jesus is the wisdom of God. Because of the supremacy of Christ over creation, does he stop there? No, he moves on to highlight the supremacy of Christ in redemption. Verse 18, he says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, of greatest importance. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How does he make peace? Through the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the wisdom of God because in him all things were created. And Jesus is the wisdom of God because in him all things can be reconciled. And are you noticing how many times Paul says all things in these six verses? Eight times in six verses. So he's obviously trying to make the point that Christ is not only preeminent over all creation, he's preeminent over all of redemptive history. And what exactly is the centerpiece of that redemption? What is the focal point of all of history? All of history focusing on the cross of Christ. In fact, that whole idea reminds me of that ride up at the Six Flags New England Water Park in Agawam called the Tornado. How many of you know the tornado? Some of you have seasons passes up there. I say the tornado. You're like, yeah, the tornado. The tornado is that big, massive blue and yellow checkered structure where you grab your friends in a four-person raft and you climb seven stories to the top of this tower so that you can cruise down at 35 feet per second into this big, massive funnel right? You, you cruise down on an angle, so you go up one side, think you're going to flip over, but you don't. You cruise down the other side, up over this, and you go back and forth, right? What's the point? <laughs> you're like, I like the other rides better. So the point of this ride, whether you like it or not, is that everyone and everything is going to end up heading out the opening at the bottom, right? It's, it's a funnel. Do you understand? That's Paul's point here with the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of redemptive history, all of redemptive history is like a funnel, and it's moving toward this one unique point in time, namely the cross, where the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator and the sustainer of the world, who rules and reigns supreme over all things, was crucified, dead, 
and buried in order to reconcile all things to himself through the blood of his cross. But the truth is, there's also a reverse funnel coming out the other side. Better to call it, not, not, not a funnel, but maybe a, a megaphone, right? That would be a better description of it. Because, of all, because all of history flows out of what took place at the cross as well. Do you see how that makes Christ the wisdom of God? Not only in his person as the unique God-man, 100% God, 100% man, but also in his finished work on the cross where he reconciles all things to himself. And he makes peace. Peace first between man and God. And then peace between one another. Which, of course, is why it's the Lord Jesus Christ that we proclaim. Number three, the proclamation of wisdom. Look at what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, Him we proclaim. We don't proclaim all sorts of other things. Hey, you know what? Jesus is good for salvation, but then you need to move on to other things. You need other kinds of wisdom. Nope. Verse 28. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. Notice. With all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You know, every time I read those words, I'm convicted. I mean, we just briefly unpack the supremacy of Christ in creation and the supremacy of Christ in redemption. How he's the true wisdom of God in his person and in his work. And yet, I'm wondering, how often does he come up in our conversations? I mean, how many of us are working hard at proclaiming Christ? with family and friends, with colleagues and co-workers? Or are we just playing it safe by talking about easier topics? You know, I felt the tension this past week when I was talking on the phone with a person who is very near and dear to my heart, that I believe stands outside of faith in Christ. And I had called to connect with them, and we were talking about all sorts of other things, having a good time chatting, getting the update on her life, when her failing health came up. And I knew, here it is. Here's the great opportunity to proclaim 
Christ, but I could feel it. You know that feeling? I, I could feel it in my own heart to just stay safe. And yet Paul's words came to my mind. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. So I jumped in in order to remind my grandmother that life is fleeting, that she could die at any time, and the importance of making sure that her soul is secure, that she's reconciled to God. And of course, the God talk brought no tension at all. I could talk about God all day long. No tension. Spiritualism, religion in general, no problems, no tension. But when I pressed the exclusivity of Jesus, which is what it means that he alone is the wisdom of God, that no one comes to the Father but through him. It was only then, only when I moved to Jesus did we have tension. We need to heed Paul's exhortation to proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But we're not just called to proclaim him. We're also called to walk in him. So as we transition from number one, context of the promise, to number two, declaration of the promise, let me just ask this clarifying question. What is Paul hoping to accomplish with all of this? Well, he's trying to point these dear believers to the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Those go together. You have to have the supremacy of Christ in order to have the sufficiency of Christ, namely his death on the cross to cancel our debt. That is where we are ultimately going this morning. But the only way to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is through the true wisdom of God, who is Christ. So it's not just believing in Christ. It's A, the steadfastness to walk in Christ. Look at what Paul says in verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So Paul's exhorting the Colossians to continue to persevere in their faith in Christ because he alone is the wisdom of God. And he is sufficient not only for salvation, but for sanctification. And you get that right out of the imagery he gives here, don't you? Verse 7, he says, rooted and built up in him. So just think about that. Because he's saying you need to be grounded in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. In fact, that's what it means to be rooted in him. So be thinking like a plant, right? And those rooted, right? Those roots need to be buried deep in the soil if you're ever going to give them a chance to build up with fruit and flowers. And there's a connection there, right? The deeper the root, the greater the fruit. And the same is true with every single believer in Christ. So our roots of faith need to be deeply planted in Christ, believing in him, trusting in him with great clarity and conviction. And as we've just seen, with increasing wisdom and knowledge, 
which causes a believer to grow and bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. But be warned, if there's no root in Christ, then there will be no fruit of the Spirit. So just as you received Christ, so walk in Him. And Why exactly is Paul exhorting these believers to continue to walk in Christ? Because they're being tempted by the world around them. So they're being presented with all sorts of alternatives on wisdom. This is why Paul is continually contrasting the false wisdom that is captivating the Colossians with the true wisdom of Christ. And he's constantly exhorting them, be to the sufficiency of Christ. That's why he says, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty conceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Here's the contrast, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, do you hear how that sounds just like what he just said in chapter 1, verses 15 and 17? What's Paul doing? Well, he's repeating himself. He's saying the same thing over and over again. Number one, don't be captivated by false teaching. Don't look to human tradition or to philosophy or to the elemental spirits of this world. But why? Why not look to those things? Because they'll never ultimately satisfy. Not in a million years. Because they're not sufficient to save your soul from hell or sufficient to sanctify your life so that you're actually empowered to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and in a manner that is glorifying to God. And please notice that little word, captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. That's war language, isn't it? So there's a battle raging for our minds and our hearts and ultimately our souls. But the devil doesn't care if he captivates your mind or your heart. He doesn't need to captivate both your mind and your heart. He doesn't care as long as he captivates your soul. Meaning he's happy to challenge your thinking, tempting you with worldly wisdom, human philosophy, and empty deceit. Which, by the way, is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. What's Paul's admonition? 2 Corinthians 10.5. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Notice that connection. Your thinking leads to your living. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's a battle raging for your mind. There's also a battle raging for your heart, isn't there? You know, Jesus shares this unbelievably profound wisdom in Matthew 6, 21. He says that where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Notice that connection. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So your heart is a follower. Whatever you declare to be your treasure, that's where your heart is going to run. 
our hearts will follow to wherever or whatever or whoever is our treasure. And Paul's saying over and over and over again, make sure you're looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be captivated by other things. Don't make other things your treasure. Not the false teaching of this world, not your own efforts, not wicked things that won't ever deliver on their false promises. Instead, be captivated by the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. And then what does he do? He reminds them of the glorious truths of the gospel, including our promise for this morning. Reason number two why Jesus came to die, to cancel our debt. If you would, follow along as I read verses 11 to 15 and highlight, see the salvation of Christ, starting with number one, new life in Christ. Paul says, verse 11, in him also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what's Paul talking about? He's talking about, number one, our new life in Christ. Because a circumcision without hands is an inward circumcision. So a circumcision of the heart by the spirit and putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ is describing how the power of sin has been broken in a believer's life. So because of the sufficiency of Christ's finished work on the cross, we've been set free to walk in newness of life. And why is that? Because our identity is not in worldly wisdom, not in false teaching, not in ourselves, not our efforts, not our own accomplishments, but in Christ. That's why Paul says, verse 12, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive. How did he make you alive? Together with Christ. See how our identity is in Christ? Romans 6, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Our identity is in Christ. And how is all that possible? Because of number two, the forgiveness of sins. And this glorious promise that God has canceled our Dead. I pray we never get over these glorious truths. Look at what he says, verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Having forgiven all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now I want you to understand what Paul's saying here. Because when the Romans hung a criminal on a cross, right? They, they always fixed a record of debt over their heads, right? In fact, in the case of Jesus, as you know, the title read King of the Jews. So, so what is that, right? Well, the Romans crucified him. Why? Because he claimed to have authority that only belonged to Caesar. That was 
His record of debt. That's what he did wrong. But here Paul's saying that on the cross, the Lord Jesus ultimately took the record of debt that stood against us. Not against him. The record of debt that stood against us. So all the different ways in which we disobeyed. Not the Romans, but God himself. I mean, do you understand we come into this world under an obligation to obey God perfectly? And whether we know it or not, that's the requirement. He created us, so we are to live for his glory. And yet, obviously, not one of us do. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, eternal death, away from the Lord and from the glory of his might, as we saw last week. But here's the glorious promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises to forgive us all our trespasses. And how does he do that? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How does he do that? It says, this he set aside. Meaning, A, Jesus took it upon himself. So he takes our guilt. He takes our shame. He takes every wicked word that we've ever spoken every evil thought we've ever had, every sinful, sexual, hateful, ungodly action that we have ever done, every single record of offense we've ever committed against the Lord our God. He takes it upon himself and he nails it to the cross. Picture in your mind the nails going right through your record of wrongs. Think about the most horrific things you've done in your life. And the nails going right through that list. Every single way in which you've sinned against God or against the people of God. Every evil thought that you've had. Every wicked deed that you have done. The nails go right through that list of sins. And then they go right through the hands and the feet of the Lord Jesus. 
Jesus pays it all. Which is why all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He canceled our debt. He paid it all. There's nothing left to owe. And the only way that's possible is because Jesus is the one and only God-man. He's 100% God. He's 100% man all at the same time. What exactly is that? That's the supremacy of Christ. He rules and he reigns over all things. He is God. And he took on humanity for us. That's the sufficiency of Christ. That's the cross. Him paying our debt in full. It is done. And while doing so, verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What does that mean? Well, it means that See, Jesus disarmed our accusers. So there's absolutely no accusation of injustice with God. The cross solves that whole problem, as we'll see next week, right? God is just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. But it also means that God has done everything necessary for our salvation. So there's nothing left to be done. We don't have to let anyone else Tell us that more is required. No. Jesus paid it all. It's finished. It's done. To the world, salvation comes. Hallelujah. I'm alive. Hell was silenced. Along with every other accuser, the rulers, the authorities, the devil and his minions, they are silenced. There is no accusation because Jesus cried. It is finished. Twelve reasons Jesus came to die. Number two, to cancel our debt. That's the promise we're given right here, Colossians 2.14. Why does that matter? How does that help us? Well, it helps us to not be captivated by other things, which I believe is our tendency because we're no different than the Colossians. In fact, there's nothing new under the sun. So we're just as likely to be distracted from the supremacy of Christ or captivated by something other than the sufficiency of Christ. Either way, both have the potential of eternal consequences, if not corrected with truth and urgency. So we're just as likely to desire other things rather than delighting in Christ or fall into legalism thinking that our self-made rules and regulations are what bring us closer to God, and as a result, we become self-righteous, joyless, and judgmental. Or we succumb to mysticism. You're like, I would never do that. Really? Right? Thinking we found a special way to commune with God rather than through Christ alone, and as a result, we become proud, thinking somehow we're the elite. Oh, I want to encourage you this morning to not be captivated by other things but to delight yourself in the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ, that he alone, because of his person, can bring us to God, and he alone, because of his finished work on the cross, canceling your debt, can reconcile us back to God. We don't need anything else.
Christ is enough. Maybe you're here this morning, and if you're honest, you recognize that you're captivated with the world. Might be good things in the world. Might, might be your career, a beautiful home, a loving family, financial security, your retirement plan, complete with money, travel, beaches, and sunshine. Might be good things. Might be evil things. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life. My guess is it's probably a combination of both. But what's crystal clear is that you're not captivated with Christ. Either way, it's things that will never ultimately satisfy you, not in this life and not in eternity, because it's things that will never reconcile you to God. Only Christ is sufficient for these things because only Christ can cancel your debt. Do you hear me? Distracted with other things, good things. None of those things can cancel your debt. They just distract you from the most important thing in life. Do you see how that's a work of the devil? Just keep them distracted. Do, 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 right? That's what he does. They cannot cancel your debt. I appeal to you to light yourself in Christ. He's willingly offering his life for your life this morning. He's willingly offering to take your sins upon himself and nail them to the tree, canceling the debt that you owe so that you can not only be forgiven of your sins, but that you can have the hope of eternal life. But that means you have to be willing to humble yourself, acknowledging that all your worldly pursuits are but rubbish in comparison to the supremacy of Christ. You have to lose your life to find it. You have to forsake this world in order to gain eternity. But it's a glorious offer because the ways of this world are sinking sand in comparison to the solid rock that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? They're a shadow of things. He's the real deal. He's the only way that you can find stability in this world that has nothing ultimately to offer. I'm appealing to you. Do not remain captivated with the world. Captivate yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. How about you, dear believer, my brothers and sisters in Christ? I've got one question, one specific, sincere, simple question for you as we close. Are you absolutely convinced in your heart of hearts that it's Jesus plus nothing when it comes to your salvation and your growth in godliness? Is Christ alone sufficient for you? Now, I know the immediate answer in your mind, but I'm wondering about your heart this morning. Oh, yeah, he's sufficient. No, no, no. Dig deeper. Your heart. You see, my concern is that faith in Christ was sufficient to get you started, but now somehow good works have crept in. That somehow religious practices like reading your Bible or legalism, your self-made moral code, have now taken over. So when you do what is right, right, your system or morality, when you do what is right, God is happy. 
But when you don't do that specific system, you need to feel guilty at least for a certain amount of time. So you've got this one-for-one payment plan going on with God. And the best way you know you've got wrong-headed thinking is when you miss one of your religious requirements, or worse yet, you sin. I mean, what happens if you only get 15 minutes to read your Bible or you miss your quiet time altogether? Does it ruin your day? Or is God somehow disappointed with you? You see, I'm warning you to not be anywhere close to that thinking because it's works-based thinking, looking to other things to be reconciled to God when Christ alone is sufficient for life and godliness because of his death is fully paid for your sin. The debt is canceled. There's nothing left for you to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right? He saved me, but now I got to go through this list. And if I don't go through this list, then somehow he's not happy with me. No, he delights himself in you. He sent his son to die for you. Your debt is canceled. There's nothing that separates you from God. He's your loving, heavenly father. Jesus is all that you need. Jesus plus nothing gives you everything. I appeal to you, don't be distracted. Distraction quickly turns into being captivated. Instead, keep the high beams of your heart fixed on Jesus, that he rules and reigns supreme in your affections, knowing that he alone is sufficient for life and godliness. And because that's true, continue to delight yourself in Christ so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work and always, always, always increasing in the knowledge of the Son of God. May God give us the grace to do just that, to delight ourselves in the supremacy of Christ, that we might walk in the sufficiency of Christ, because Christ canceled our debt. Let me pray. Father, I pray that these glorious truths would ring true in our hearts. That Jesus paid it all. That his death on the cross canceled our debt. Therefore, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Father, I pray that we would know those things to be true. And I pray that we would live in light of them. For our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.